What's up, everybody? Welcome to your latest installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. In case you're wondering what's up with the Patreon, we are finishing up Robert Hughes's Shock of the New this week. We've got some stuff coming with Cat D, aka Default Friend. And then when my usual co-host and compatriot, John, finishes up some of his studies, we will be continuing with our End of History by Francis Fukuyama reading series. We're most of the way through the book now, and we just sort of have the last half to go. So if you want to check that out, that is in the show notes. But today, for a public episode, we've got somebody that I have wanted to interview for a while, Michael Cuenco. How are you doing? Good. Uh, How are you doing, uh, Emmett? I'm doing great. Very excited to have you on the show. I first saw your work in American Affairs and then listened to the great episodes you did with my buddy Jeff Schollenberger on sort of the permanence of the culture war. And then I was like, Jeff, I think I need to interview this guy. And he was like, yeah, you should. And so I got your email from him. And here we are. I'm very excited to talk to you about some of your long form pieces. I think there's some of the most perspicacious things on the culture war I've seen. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm I'm happy to be here. And yeah, I've read some of your pieces as well in uh, American Affairs, and I'm I'm also a fan. Oh well, thank you. That's nice. So before we get going, let me ask you. I was thinking about this while I was going back over some of your work today, and I was like, where the hell did this dude come from? Yeah. Like, how did you end up being the guy who can write these sort of sweeping analyses of our cultural political deadlock? Yeah, that's a good question. And I've often thought about that myself. Like, how did I end up in this place? Because, you know, you you said the other day you wanted to talk about the tax piece, which I wrote like three years ago when I was in grad school. And I had looked at it uh, again just before the call. And I was like, did I write these? You know, like, (laughs) this is is very technocratic. Like, but but, what it is, is, uh, listen, like a lot of other people in my cohort in the millennial cohort, you know, who grew up in the shadow of the financial crisis and, you know, who, who sort of politically came of age with things like Occupy Wall Street, you know, I'm motivated by this, this sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are, with whatever you want to call it, you know, the neoliberal mm-hmm. world order, the end of history. And I said to myself, well, what can I do that's, you know, productive and that's, that might actually lead to, you know, policy change. And, you know, that's not just sort of, because, you know, Occupy Wall Street, I remember watching that and feeling really, you know, sympathetic towards the the people that showed up there, but they were just Mm -hmm. sort of, their whole thing was, you know, we're going to sit around in a drum circle and we're going to chant and, you know, we're going to listen to, you know, s- speeches by Noam Chomsky and Slavoj Zizek. And that's great. But, you know, how does this sort of how can you distill this into an actual program that can actually threaten the power of those people in in Wall Street? Right. So that's sort of my line mm-hmm. of thinking. And that led me to public policy and an interest to first, firstly in taxing sort of globally mobile capital. Mm-hmm. And then I went to, I went and did a master's degree at the University of Toronto. And then that's when I interned for American Affairs. And then that's, that's sort of, yeah, that's sort of my origin story mm, with respect okay. to American Affairs. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So we're part of this age age cohort. I mean, 
The Occupy Wall Street thing, you talk about it, I think you mentioned it briefly in your <clears throat> piece for Compact on the culture yeah. war. And I want to get to that in a bit because I don't think that moment's been like well understood or like interrogated at all. Yeah. Uh, but before we do that, I kind of want to take a look at the 90s. Sure. Because you, <clears throat> more than most people I've read, have spent a lot of time digesting what happens there. Specifically yeah. in two guys, Ross Perot, yeah. who I forgot was so successful as a third-party candidate. Like, it's actually kind of incredible if you think about it. Yes. Um, and then the guy I grew up watching yell at John McLaughlin on the McLaughlin group. Sure. Pat Buchanan. So who are these guys and how do they help us understand where we are now? Yeah, well, so they, to me, represent two contrasting approaches to sort of resisting the then emergent economic orthodoxy around globalization. Hmm. So... If you want to do like a brief bio, Pat Buchanan, he came from the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. He, he was a campaign aide in 1968 for Nixon, and he worked as a sort of a, an advisor and a speechwriter along with William Sapphire. So he was very much at the forefront of the Nixon era culture war and the, you know, the, the drafting of the silent majority mm-hmm. speech. So he, that's his background. But you know, around the time of the, he ran in, or in 1992, when he began his campaign to challenge George H.W. Bush, mm-hmm. he started with a very sort of sophisticated critique of the, the you know, the unipolar moment, that post-Cold War moment. Mm-hmm. And it was a very sophisticated economic and sort of geopolitical critique, basically saying, you know, now that the Cold War is over, now is the time for us to sort of unwind the empire and, you know, focus on reasserting our, you know, economic sovereignty in the face of these, of our rivals in Asia and Europe. And, but then something happens where, you know, obviously he, you know, he, he you know, he loses the, the primary, you know, he performs very well in New Hampshire, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. And he's given a chance to speak at the Republican National Convention. And all of a sudden, when he's speaking in front of the party establishment, you know, that the critique all of a sudden is is replaced with this sort of he returns to form basically. He just goes back to the sort of the cultural narrative. And, you know, I don't know what happened to the critique, you know. All yeah. of a sudden it's just about sort of, you know, owning the lips. And he stops talking about or 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 he plays down the the opposition to the economic policies of the Republican Party. So mm-hmm. I just thought that was a that was a very interesting sort of trajectory, and it sort of prefigured what would happen later on with Trump, where he begins in 2015, 2016 as a very kind of you know vociferous critique, uh, as a very vociferous critic of the economic orthodoxies of the Republican Party, only then to get into power and essentially you know outsource his agenda to the same Republican Party. So that's yeah, that's what I noticed with Buchanan. Right. Was that 92, uh, with, the big culture war speech? Yeah, um, that was at the Republican Con- uh, National Convention in 1992. Yeah. Right. So, exhaust listeners, if you want to go back into our archives, frequent guest Josh Bregman and I looked at, I think this is in the Patreon archives, a movie Robert Downey Jr. did about the 1992 election. 
which has footage of him sitting there while Pat Buchanan gives this speech and sort of real-time reacting to it. It is a very weird film. I think the episode is called I Went Down to the Piraeus Yesterday with Robert Downey Jr. So anyway, what, was, what was what was the name of that movie? I, I remember seeing I'll have it. to I'll have to look up I'll have to look at look up what it was called, but it was it's sort of like an amazing time capsule because he goes to both conventions. You can sort of see the new orthodoxy emerging. He interviews people for that are like living in poverty in rural Texas or who are sort of in deindustrializing small towns. But then he also talks to like Dave Mustaine from Megadeth and yeah. who's very interested in rebalancing the trade deficit at that point and Oliver Stone. And then, you know, watching the election results come in with his father who says, this is the first time I felt the way I did since the 60s. Yeah, yeah. That was a great year for uh, campaign documentaries because you also had The War Room. Right, uh, yeah. With James Carville and, and George Stephanopoulos on the other side. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, that was such a such a kind of a kind of a pivotal moment and because it, you, as i write in the in the culture war piece like you still have this sense that you know things even though you know the neoliberal orthodoxy was sort of being entrenched to the democratic party with clinton and the dlc and you know obviously in the republican party with, with the stranglehold of, of movement conservatism you still had a sense that maybe things were still you know up for grabs you know yeah. And yeah, it you, was like the last shot at it being up for grabs because the Cold War was over. Yeah. It was like, what do we do next? And it seems like there's a glimmer of a different path. Yeah. And the other guy, as you noted, was uh, Ross Perot, who took mm-hmm. a very different approach from Buchanan, where his thing was to constantly stress his own economic critique, which is not very different from Buchanan's. But he, he did that to the almost total exclusion of cultural and moral wedge issues. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's a there was an Atlantic piece that they wrote around the time Perot died when back in 2019, I think. And they were comparing him to Andrew Yang, who was running for president at the time. And they were saying how, you know, sort of like Yang, like he really tried to to to, to keep everything on point with his with his you know economic program. And he, he really made a conscious effort to play down or just to avoid making any comments on things like abortion or, you know, gun control mm-hmm. or anything like that. So, and, you know, he had that whole thing where he, he had a very colorful personality and he would show up with like these charts and he would sort of explain in a very wonkish way, you know, why, you know, the deficit or why the trade balance, you know, was a problem. And so, yeah, it's just a very interesting sort of contrast between those two figures. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. the way our, our political discourse, the way our political discourse evolved is very much in the direction of, of Buchanan rather than Perot. Right. I remember there's this sort of iconic debate between Perot and then a vice president or vice presidential candidate, Al Gore, on Larry King. Yeah. And to just sort of get back at Perot for his like wonkishness and bringing charts Albert yeah. brings like a framed portrait of Smoot Hawley of Smoot Hawley. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I remember <laughs> and like chastises that well. him, you know, sort of like, don't you know, you know, that the type of thing that you're suggesting like creates the Great Depression. 
Yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Uh, which sort of signals a changing of the guard within the Democratic Party and towards this uh, monopolitics, let's call it, and monoparty, perhaps, since there's, you know, the Trump presidency was more or less the Jared Kushner presidency. Yes, yes. So let me ask you, like, why is it that we end we end up going in... And I say we because the culture war is totalizing and all consuming, as you very successfully argued in your pieces. Why is it that we end up going in the direction of the sort of Pat Buchanan culture war world and not towards a return to vying over different modes of political economy? Can I just add on to the, the, just as a kind of a, a coda to this whole. Thing Please do resisting yeah. ne- resisting neoliberalism, but you know the Trump administration. If you look at the very beginning of the Trump administration, there was almost a similar sense of things could be up for grabs mm-hmm. once again, right? And in particular, I'm thinking of two proposals: one from Steve Bannon in August 2017, so right uh, right before he was fired. He wanted to raise, I think, the top marginal tax rates. Uh, the top marginal tax rate on highest income earners and his you know his populist logic was that you know this is going to affect all of the liberal elites that we hate and so let's let's raise taxes on them mm-hmm. and then you had another proposal from the ceo of newsmax who's trump's friend i think his name is christopher reddy or ruddy mm-hmm. i had to look that up but he had a very interesting proposal where he wanted to he wanted Trump to openly break with the Freedom Caucus and to basically patch up Obamacare and institute his own health care reform, which would have been like a Medicaid for all or something like that. But right. some really ambitious kind of health care thing where that would have just completely gone you know, against the orthodoxy of the mm-hmm. Republican Party. Right. Of course, that didn't happen. And instead, the bargain that was struck between Trump and the Republican leadership was that they were going to let him do, you know, the culture war stuff, let him tweet, let him, you know, go to war with the media. They were going to defend him on that, but basically just pass our agenda on tax cuts, on deregulation. The one partial exception maybe was with trade with Lighthizer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just as a counterfactual, if you could imagine if Trump had gone with a Bannon tax hike on the liberal elites and the, the healthcare reform, like, wouldn't that have been just revolutionary? Like, like, yeah. a, like a revolution within the Republican Party. That would have pitted Trump against the Paul Ryans, the Mitch McConnells, the Jim Jordans. If he had, and that, and, you know, he would have been like FDR plus Nixon, you know? Right, right. But as we know, you know, that didn't happen. And we're sitting here, you know, looking at this whole fracas about Trump and you know, I don't even know what the Trump movement is about anymore. You know, it's 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 moved on from from substantive policy critiques of the kind that that was that w- would have been possible in 2016, 2017. And now it's just this, you know, something else entirely. But anyway, mm-hmm. to answer your 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 question earlier, you know, this is a very difficult and sort of, you know, mysterious phenomenon to grapple with. But 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 the essay the answer that i came up with in the essay was that i i looked at the work of this scholar whose name is ronald engelhart 
And he basically identified this sort of shift in values that he called the silent revolution, which emerged in the 1960s. And this phenomenon he calls post-materialism. And basically what it is, is, you know, as the Western world reached a sort of a certain level of material comfort, you know, the salience of material issues of political economy issues eventually weakens. And in place of that, you have these new cleavages, these new sort of value sets that are much more about things like self-expression and identity affirmation. So basically, that this is a development that began in the 1960s, and it's only sort of become more and more prominent and ubiquitous ever since. And we're basically stuck with that for the time being. So the hope that I had in writing that essay was to just to point out that, you know, it wasn't always this way. You know, political economy was for the most part, for much of American history, the main cleavage. And it would probably be better for all of us if we could sort of try getting back to that framework of politics. Mm. Mm. What's interesting to me, I had never heard of Engelhardt before your thing. And I've sort of like looked into him a little bit since then. And I was very charmed by the conception of the change it certainly spoke to things that we've noticed on the show and and one of them you know here at exhaust we we never say the long 60s we say the long 70s mm. because it seems like and i believe both you and Engelhart note this there's something more in keeping with the liberal republican tradition in the quests for recognition in the 60s Mm-hmm. Insofar as it's about, you know, like equal treatment under the law and things like that. And what happens in the 70s, I think, is a repatterning of an industry and a total rethinking of what American political economy is going to end up meaning. And then I think there are some things that are sort of attached to that, including like the civilianization of the Silicon Valley that yeah. sort of leap off and create a world where this type of identitarianism is completely ubiquitous. Specifically, when we talk about online life, I joke with my friend Kat D, you know, all that is solid melts into fandom. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where we are. So what is the post is like, is the post-materialism of today, like noticeably different from what Engelhart's looking at? And if so, how? And if not, why? Well, so when you mean the post-materialism of today, like the post-materialism of this sort of highly online moment that we're in. Uh, yeah, yeah, the the memo sphere. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. What, would, what, how does how does you as a card carrying member of the anti meme task force? Yes, yes. Well, you see, here's the thing: these technologies came about. They're you know the social media environment is a relatively recent thing, right? Within the last decade and a half or so. But it was, you know, I wrote this piece in Palladium, which uh, mm-hmm. which, which I would recommend to your listeners. I but also recommend it, it. I second that, <laughs> by the way. So what it is, is these technological developments, they are, you know, cumulative, but they're part of a, uh, they, they feed back into an underlying trend of self-expression, right? So, you know, the the people that are, that are online, that are politically conscious in, you know, on Twitter, you know, they, they think, you know, they think of themselves as being politically engaged, right? But what is the extent of that engagement? It's I'm going to log on to my Twitter with my, you know, my 
rose emoji or my you know my dove emoji or my ukraine flag emoji or my cross emoji and i'm going to you know exchange memes with other people in my in my you know online social circle and i'm going to engage in this sort of aesthetic immersive experience which is you know sort sort of continuous with my own sort of conception of my own identity mm-hmm. and that's that's sort of the extent of that engagement but you know they think they think of those things as political acts as political statements you know to an extent but fundamentally you know these are just modes of self expression and self affirmation and you know community membership affirmation and you sort of put all of that in a in a bag right let's label that the culture war bag Mm-hmm. And you sort of all of those, you know, all those behaviors, all those sentiments, put it in that bag, and then you sort of ask yourself, okay, what's the connection between this bag and like the processes of like structural and institutional change mm. that we know are going to be necessary if we're going to build a post-neoliberal order? Right? So, what's the connection between all of the emojis and all of the hashtags and all of that, and the larger process of structural and institutional change? And you know. What would you say is the connection? Yeah, I mean, I have struggled to find one, which is sort of how I ended up doing this podcast. Yes. Well, if you know, if you want to be generous, you could say that that whole, all of the sentiments that are being expressed in the culture war, you know, all of the sort of contrarian and transgressive you know, sensibilities that are active, that that's a symptom of the widespread dissatisfaction that we all have with the way things are, right? If you mm-hmm. want to be generous. But fundamentally, my answer is that there's not really, there's not any connection between that cultural war bag and the larger process of structural institutional change. But because every because everybody is in that mindset, you know, that online meme mindset, that's sort of why, I mean, to answer the question that your podcast is is based on, you know, that's why I think nothing happens. It's because the people who feel like they're doing something or who are motivated to do something they end up in this little these little niche communities mm-hmm. that don't really you know feed back into the wider world so anyway that's that's just that's yeah, just how I, can, I see things yeah i can i can see that i mean the i so here's a question that i have for you then yeah. like what's the is there an appreciable difference between what you've just described you know that we're all terminally internet brained and that that's the sort of like epistemological obstacle to recognizing and acting on the situation. Is that just another variant of false consciousness or is it something else? I would say it is an, an epistemic environment that is conducive to the generation of multiple strains of false consciousness. Mm. So it's just, you know, people are, there's a whole cottage industry, for instance, of, you know, anti-woke polemics. And I would agree with a lot of that. But I noticed that the anti-woke crowd has sort of fallen into its own kind of, you know, like I was saying, you know, like the, the response to the to the one thing is to, you know, the, the, they're averse to the woke aesthetic. So they embrace the trad aesthetic, you mm-hmm. know, and then that's their. But it's just sort of they're just they're just feeding off of each other. And so you know it's it's very difficult to to get out of that when the 
when false consciousness is is so you know is so seductive in these in these environments. Right. So that seems to build on some of the things you bring up in your Palladium piece about Marshall McLuhan and his idea yeah. of the post-literate society and the tribalism it would bring to bear. I was wondering if you'd talk to us a little bit about those ideas. Sure, sure. So basically, Marshall, so Marshall McLuhan, you know, famous Canadian uh, media theorist, He's most known for his distinction between hot and cool media. We can get into that if you want. But the distinction, the dichotomy that I uh, focus on in that Palladian piece is about sort of literate and post-literate or mm-hmm. literate and tribal. And basically what Marshall McLuhan argues is that from the dawn of literacy and up until sort of the, you know, the Gutenberg printing press and and the centuries that came after that, you you basically had all the elements that you needed to constitute the modern mindset, which mm-hmm. is linear, it's progressive, it's sort of not progressive politically, but just progressive in a sort of a there's a there's a progressive there's a meta narrative of progress that you could right. follow that was linear, that was logical. And you know, that had many good sort of fruits and, and also, you know, horrible you know, historical events came out of that. So mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a purely good or a purely bad thing, but that was a that was sort of the mindset of modernity was being able to think in sort of linear and progressive modes of, th- of thought. But then with the advent of electronic media, you had a sort of a shift into the what he calls the post-literate mindset, which is which is which resembles sort of the pre-literate mindset, which is sort of more holistic and simultaneous modes of thought and consciousness. Mm-hmm. So the clearest expression of that when Marshall McLuhan was, was, was alive was the whole hippie moment of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But we are living in the sort of, you know, the protracted, you know, the protracted sort of after effects of that. And mm-hmm. I bring up this uh, this essay that came out in 1995 called the Californian Ideology. Yeah, fantastic essay. That's yeah, it's a, it's a landmark Barbrook, essay. Right? Yes, and it basically posits the connection between that sort of tribalistic, post-literate, oral mindset and the advent of the new sort of online internet technology that we're living in. So right. that it's basically just... leads us back to where we are now. Right. And and that makes sense just historically, too, because, well, first of all, Barlow, who writes the, what is it called? The Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. Yeah, right. I mean, he's an old Grateful Dead guy. And the whole Earth catalog goes from being a sort of like neo-homesteader and hippie back to the land publication to creating the first online forums where we can go back and find people writing essays in the 90s, very early adopters of cyberspace, already discussing things like cancel culture. Yes. You you know, they're just not called that. It's like being iterated ahead of time, right? So some of the, the, there's a, we did a discussion, I did a discussion with Kat D about the essay, A Rape in Cyberspace, which is sort of a paradigmatic example of this. So I think one of the things that's strange to me is that there's this like period 
from that spans since we're both millennials, I would say like substantial portion of our adolescences and childhoods, maybe even to early adulthood, depending on how old you are, of just like rank techno optimism about yes. the internet, which just sort of forgot all of these incredible concerns that were being published and widely read in the 90s. Yes. And those seem to have all gotten buried by the dot-com bubble bursting. And then suddenly 4chan exists and people are publishing verso books about them with this insurrectionary hope that the internet will be the vehicle for whatever sort of like color revolution we want to do to ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's very strange that whole yeah. that, like amnesia. I have I don't quite understand it. Yeah, you know we you know the the height of the techno optimism that you're talking about. I remember I remember it lasted until about 2015 until Donald Trump started using Twitter. You know the the liberal yeah. establishment had this this love affair with Jack Dorsey mm-hmm. and Twitter. And I remember I remember the first time I heard about Twitter. It was in the context of the Iranian Green Revolution, mm. and the people, you know, on on CNN, they were like, "There's, they're, the protesters are using this thing called Twitter." This would have been in 2009. Yeah, and they're using it to spread a message of freedom and democracy. And then the year after that, or a couple years after that, you had the Arab Spring, and Twitter and Facebook and social media were sort of similarly prominent in that. And I remember just reading about what Twitter was and feeling just a deep sense of suspicion and dread. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't articulate it because everybody was like so ecstatic and everybody I knew, they were signing on to Twitter. And then I remember just feeling that, but just sort of keeping it to myself. Because essentially it was, I, I thought to myself, you know, this is a platform where you can publish your brain farts. Right. Mm-hmm. And I said, that can't be good. Right? <laughs> uh, and then this guy, Nicholas Carr, he wrote a book a couple of years later called The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Mm-hmm. I think it came out in 2010 or 11. And basically, he, he delivers this wonderful critique and draws on Marshall McLuhan, draws on, uh, uh, on a bunch of other thinkers and basically says, you know, the Internet is turning our collective you know intelligence into mush right mm-hmm. and then a couple of years later announces president and he, he becomes adept at twitter and then all of a sudden the liberal establishment you know wakes up to to, to what this thing is and then the techno optimism that was so you know that was so prominent in the early part of the decade all of a sudden you know there's a there's a 180 and now we're we have this you know, extreme techno pessimism, which I'm much more aligned with. But you know, it's just I don't know what what we're actually going to do about it because you have all of this sentiment now that you know regulate big tech, break up big tech. But because of the you know the the culture war and and everything, I, I doubt that it's actually going to be distilled into a proper regulatory program, and we're just going to end up you know, bickering about it for the next however many years. Well, yeah. I mean, there's also sort of like a broader question, right? A deeper question where we can say, you know, as I've just mentioned, the critiques that we have now existed 
20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. They existed, so, honestly, like 50 years ago. Like even, like, you know, you have all these clips of McLuhan on YouTube. You can look them up where he's basically describing the internet. As yeah. You know it. And he's extrapolating from, from you know, the rudimentary electronic technology that they had back then. Like, this is what's going to happen. And this is what's going to do that. This is what that's going to do to society. So it's all in there. It's right. all been written out. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of, you know, in keeping with the theme of Canadian excellence, having you on here and talking about <laughs> McLuhan, there is also, you know, this is also a major, it's hard to imagine a more like McLuhan-esque movie than Cronenberg's Videodrome, mm -hmm. where, you know, technology does like form new appendages yes. on the James Woods character that yes. create a sort of violent, and hallucinatory parapolitics that yes. exists outside of any state jurisdiction or even political concern and seems to traffic in the realms of media, religion, and advertising. Yes, yes. There's another great Cronenberg called Cosmopolis, which you, mm -hmm. you must have seen, and it, it tackles the same theme based on a an earlier novel but no anyway it's it's just yeah it's just when when you realize that this is such a kind of a ubiquitous phenomenon that's sort of baked into the fabric of our culture and our discourse you know the question then is how do you how do you break from that like how do you envision you know an exit from this and there's a part of me that says you don't really have to enact a larger cultural change. You just have to convince enough people, enough of the sort of the staffers and the people that work in, at, at, in Congress and in the White House. And this can be a very sort of purely elite driven thing where mm -hmm. you just you you restrict the policy discourse to that upper strata. Right. And then everybody else can just sort of, you know, remain stuck in this. <laughs> or do you, you know, you know, right? It's just much easier that way. Or do you try to engineer a much more sort of revolutionary break with the status quo? Which I, I talked about. I, I think I talked about this with uh, Jeff Schulenberger on his podcast. But I, I have this recurring dream or fantasy where you nationalize the social media giants and then you basically shut them off. Mm -hmm. for like you know three or four days a week uh, and then you know like do you have to go you know that far in order to 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 you know reform the system anyway th these are questions that i that i that i wrestle with but right yeah i mean it seems there are pitfalls either way you know i mean and it's interesting to me like you know in thinking about sort of the almost cyclical story of history that McLuhan is telling where we end up sort of retribalizing ourselves or third worlding ourselves yes, in a way yes. is that these seem to be like very platonic concerns. And I don't mean that in, in the Platonism ideal sense. I mean, the problems with ideology, democracy, and information that Plato seems to concern himself in with, especially in the Republic, but in other dialogues. And by that, I mean, there is sort of a question of which class is the best vehicle for breaking out of our ideological deadlock, by what mechanism, 
Could you bring people to recognize their actual actual situation when it's so painful yeah. to do so? And how are you ever sure that you have, in fact, yourself exited the cave? Could there not be a cave within the cave? Yeah. Well, that's the that's the beautiful thing about sort of hewing to the materialist, you know, the materialist conception of history mm -hmm. is that, you know, that is its own proof, right? So we're never really sure if the subjectivities that we put on, if that's, you know, if that's, you know, that's sort of postmodern critique, right? You can, you can adopt as many ideological uh, guises as you want, but you're never really sure if that particular, you know, meta narrative is, is valid or is correct. But if you have, if you base yourself on a material, you know, if you give yourself sort of criteria that are based on the objective material circumstances, that's its own proof. Like, for instance, if you look at China, right, mm -hmm. I wouldn't subscribe to the official Communist Party, you know, ideological subjectivity. I wouldn't call myself a Maoist or a Marxist or anything like that. But the, the, the ideological subjectivity that, that, that they put on seems to work for them. And the proof is that if you go to China, you know, you actually have, you know, cities, you know, modern cities that, you know, are coming out of places that 30 years ago we're just these sort of peasant backwaters that are now, you know, these modern metropolises. They mm -hmm. have, you know, they have they they manage to industrialize themselves themselves in, in the span of a generation. So whatever they're doing works for them. So the reason I'm arguing for the readoption of a materialist political economy centered point of view is that 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 would serve as its own proof. Once the factories start coming back to Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio, like that should, that should be its own validation. And we don't need to, you know, cause I'm, I'm all for philosophical debates, you know, like, well, are we in the cave? Or are we out of the cave? Like we can, sure, we can debate yeah. that. We can debate that until the, you know, the wee hours of the morning. I'm not, I'm not against that, but that shouldn't be, we shouldn't confuse that for political action for a political program. You know what I mean? Right. I'm, I guess, I hear what you're saying, and I think that there's just sort of like a pragmatic, hard-nosed, like functionalism yes. that you're talking about here. The The way that we get there, though, seems frustrated by your own analysis of the culture war deadlock. And that's yeah. sort of what I was pointing to, wherein I think that the stickiness of the culture war is that it makes the cave just euphemistically yeah. unnecessary thing to have to confront. Right. Like this is the, you know, Zizek sort of close reading the Rowdy Roddy Piper trying to put the glasses on the guy and they live. Yes. Yeah. And, th and that's all I meant, where it's sort of like the road to the functionalism seems itself like troubled by the generations upon generations of false consciousness that you've just described. Yeah. Which is why, you know, I'm. You know, if if the McLuhan analysis would suggest that all of this is baked into the environment, mm. uh, you know, the medium is the message, as he famously said. You know, maybe you have to start with changing the premises of the environment that you're in before mm. you can have any any sort of switch over to the functionalist or materialist paradigm. And so that's right. why I'm so interested in or obsessed almost with this concept of just shutting off social media for <laughs> four days. And then within that four days, you know, people are going to walk out of their, 
their basements all dazed, and then they're like, they're gonna rediscover the fact that they that they live in this thing called the real world, which mm -hmm. is made up of atoms. You know, to use Peter Thiel's thing, you know, atoms and not bits. You know, once we re-inhabit the world of atoms, I think rediscovery of the functionalist materialist paradigm will will, will be a lot easier under those mm. circumstances. So if if you know, and it seems like such it's such a pipe dream, right? Shutting off social media. But if you could sort of create a critical mass of the anti-tech sentiment across mm -hmm. right and left. And you could sort of translate it into a program that would have that effect of shutting down social media. Like, I think that's that's definitely worth, I think, looking into. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I'm also thinking if there aren't like other things that happen that make the culture war suddenly appear irrelevant. And by that, I mean, we're... I don't think anybody's really being honest with themselves about how bad it's going to be in Europe this winter. If it's a cold yeah. winter. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, you've read my work, you know, I'm sort of preoccupied by essential physical infrastructure, including the electricity grid, which here yes. is experiencing problems as well. But the entire industrial system, this is sort of my thing. I think we're in the paradoxical place of having to conserve modernity. And yes. I think once these, perhaps this is, I'm suggesting this to you. Do you think that if there is a shock hard enough to essential industrial systems like food production, heating, electricity, et cetera, that that could also just render some of this culture war stuff moot? Right? Like it, you know, sort of like the, the revenge of Maslow's hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, well, if you, if you get to a point where, uh, you know, we, we reach sort of a Mad Max world, then yeah, and that'll, you know, the internet has been, has been shut off because there's no power, you know, to, on which to, to surf the internet, you know, then yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna necessarily return. But bearing that, you know, I think it's really difficult. I think that the, the test of that was the COVID-19 pandemic, which should have been sort of this, you know, this external objective mm. threat. But mm. immediately... Right. What happened, it was immediately assimilated into the cultural war narrative, right? You know, Reagan had this great quote, and mm -hmm. he was talking to Gorbachev, and he said, well, you know, Mr. General Secretary, I think that our two nations will come together the moment the aliens invade. Because he, he had <laughs> By the seen way, that was a dead-on Re Reagan. I'm very I, I, I do all the presidents. But you know, he, <laughs> saw the, he saw a movie the previous night about an alien invasion. So that's how his mind worked, right? He just, right, just right. brought it up. And I, I bet Gorbachev was like, is the translation correct? Is he talking, right. is he talking about it? Right. But, you know, that's an interesting idea. You know, I, I, I think what if that scenario happened, like under the culture war, if like aliens invaded tomorrow, I don't think it would be like Independence Day. I don't think it would be like this unifying moment. I think immediately the aliens would be assimilated. Into the place. We're going to be like, what gender are the aliens? Right. Or, you know, be, like what, I mean... Well, just just more straightforwardly, it would be who's making what potential friend enemy distinction about the enemy about the aliens. Yeah, and how does like, that like, slot into the culture war priors? Yeah, like do the aliens support stop the steal? Uh, right. You know, like, what did they watch over there on Andromeda? You know, are they Fox News or MSNBC? Like, it'll immediately be assimilated. So I don't think. You you could come up with as many of these sort of apocalyptic scenarios, you know, 
climate change, food insecurity, whatever. But as long as our primary mode of political engagement is on our you know, phones, on our screens, like I don't think I don't think any emergency will will unfortunately, you know, be enough. No, that's that that point's well taken. The COVID comparison I think is very, very apt. You know, it's I mean it's strange, right? It is very surprising, I think, to be living in a society where like system wide trust is so low. And that seems to have made the status quo more durable. Yes, yes, yes. You know, there's a there's a quote by this other of uh, this uh, sociologist as Benjamin Bratton, and he said that the last revenge of the 1968 boomer generation was this idea that all verticality and structure is are, are suspect. Yes, yeah. the verticality, structure, rationality itself is suspect so in the old pre in the old classic materialist vantage point you essentially had politics as a contest between competing ideas of material progress Mm -hmm. so that's what the cold war was right Mm -hmm. so communism versus capitalism you know if one doesn't work the other side has a chance to prove that it's that it's the superior system So, so but these were still systems operating on a premise of rationality Whereas what happens when you discard rationality itself, right? The extant rational systems break down, but you cannot yourself conceive of a rational alternative, mm-hmm. right? So your response to the, rash, the breakdown of the existing rational system is to just indulge in these you know, aesthetic and effective rebellions, right? I mean... It's funny that we're living in this era of just fertile, extremely fertile intellectual heterodoxy. Like all mm-hmm. of these different policy programs coming out of academia, but none of them have coalesced into a, an alternative to the system that we all agree is a rotten system. Right? Right. I mean, it reminds me of something that I, you know, I really don't like this guy, Andreas Malm sort of like a Marxist degrowther climate catastrophist. But he was sort of refreshingly honest when he said that the climate crisis, as he calls it, is, you know, a revolution in search of a subject. Yeah. And I was like, well, I sort of disagree with that, but I could put in almost anything I can think of <laughs> that we're yeah. dealing with and say it's in search of a subject. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the galvanization doesn't really lead anywhere. Yeah. So yes. you bring up in your Palladium piece that this provides a very staggering. I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to read you to you. Sure. Because uh, I wanted to talk about this part. You say, what if the threat to the liberal political order is not an illiberal ideology, but a pre-liberal and post-literate epistemology. Some of this we've already talked about, but I sort of want to fine-tune it on liberalism, and I'm going to read this part next. The heart of the challenge is that liberalism professes to derive truth and meaning from the rational, objective world which can be observed, measured, and confirmed. The new epistemic shamanism seeks truth and meaning from the disembodied spirit realm represented by social media and the internet. The latter process is fundamentally extra rational and subjective and therefore quote unquote mythical. 
Yes. To the literate liberal, I read it on the internet, or many people are saying are not valid proofs. To the post-literate, it is perfectly legitimate. The ebb and flow of discourse separate from any particular work of communication is itself the reality. Yes. So can liberalism in the not in the sort of like pejorative slang sense but in the strict constitutional sense weather this epistemic storm well yeah that's again that's that is the million dollar question and yeah it's yeah, it's not looking good. If I can, if I can be, uh, <laughs> you're allowed to be, be as pessimistic honest. as you want to be on here, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the fact that you you have spaces like this, uh, like your like your show, and journals like American Affairs, and you know, which is I'm very proud of the fact that it's a it's a militantly old fashioned kind of publication. Mm-hmm. Where it, it, it resembles those sort of 1950s, you know, uh, like the Partisan Review or yeah, like it's a very long form thing. But the, the fact that spaces like this exist, I think this should be like the, you know, the starting point for a counter revolution against against the postmodern deluge. Mm. Right. Because a lot of because that culture war piece that was addressed to in large part the same highly online bunch of people that we're talking about that are already aware of how how bad things are, but who may not know how to act on it. That's what Marshall McLuhan was saying, too, is that the post-literate mindset, you know, it's not wrong. Right. It's not the tribal mindset, the oral mindset, whatever you want to call it. It's not wrong, but it, it it's more aware than the rational mindset, in fact, because it can assimilate these sort of structural and environmental realities and sort of condense it into a into a, a sort of a mythical, you know, that's what mythology is, right? It condenses these human experiences into sort of vivid you know, narrative and symbolic representations. So we're already there. The awareness has already come to a large segment of the political and intellectual class in the United States, or a significant enough subset. What remains is for us to turn that that awareness, that mythical awareness, into a proper, into a properly functioning, you know, program that you can then use to reform the liberal system itself. If that makes sense. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad you sort of brought up hierarchy in this. I think, like, and sort of the challenge here like the i keep thinking about while you were saying that i kept thinking about nasim taleb yes the author of anti-fragile book i i quite like even even if i sort of find him grading or i disagree with him on certain things it's a very it, the book helped me think which is probably one of the best things you can say about a book yeah. uh, but what i th- find is so fascinating about him is that there seems to be like maybe two versions of liberalism that because of the shifts that we've been talking about sort of get lumped together. And one is the sort of economic liberalism Mm -hmm. and the other would be political liberalism. Because one of the things that he argues 
is that social media has, I think he's being sort of unconsciously McLuhanite here, Yes, turned discourse into more like a village square that's filled with rumor, conjecture, yes. or whatever, but that that has made it resilient to sort of the expert failure endemic to verticality. Yes. And I'm, I was sort of like that. I, I was like, I suppose there's some truth to that. But there seems to be this like other exchange happening that isn't going noticed, that is sort of like what you just described, which is the more like enlightenment discriminating idea of rationality as playing a vital role in politics and human subjectivity. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. Yeah, Taleb is definitely, like you said, he's a, he's a guy who makes you think even if you don't agree with everything he says. And I don't still don't know what to make of his whole anti-concept. But anyway, sorry, what was the question? Right. I guess it, I guess it was more of like a more of like a comment or just sort of like asking what you think about this sort of lumping together of the political and economic liberalism and how that seems to create its own sort of problem for thinking through the things that we're talking about with tribalism. Or if it does, I mean, I might be totally wrong here. <laughs> no, yeah, but... yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting because we mean so many things when we say liberalism, right? So by mm -hmm. economic liberalism, you're referring to what precisely? The current sort of... Yeah, I guess I would say the thing... I, I guess I would put it two ways, right? So yeah. like when I think of political liberalism... I'm sort of thinking of the founding fathers of America sure, and being very self-conscious about creating a constitution and thinking about what sort of political subjectivity could be virtuous within it. John Adams certainly had a lot of things to say about that, but that also like what participation and citizenship required for that political community to continue. Yes. And I think that there is a depth that gets under acknowledged about the liberal tradition that takes those problems very seriously. Yes. And then there is sort of the, this is what people would call neoliberalism, I suppose. I mean, I've seen so many definitions of it that I don't know what the hell it actually means now. So I'm just yeah. going to call it economic liberalism sure. for the sake of our conversation, which sort of puts the market before the political constitution of a people. Yes, yes, yeah. And well, there's know, sort of like a yeah. parallax view that happens there that I think is actually very unsettling and might actually play a role in some of the things that we're talking about. But I'm kind of being half baked here, if I'm being honest. Yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting? There's a there's a there, there's a historiographical uh, school of thought coming from people like I don't know if you've ever heard of JGA Pocock. But he he's a New Zealand scholar who is at Cambridge or was mm. Cambridge. And, but he reframes that whole sort of debate that you just sort of alluded to as being between liberalism proper mm -hmm. and what he calls classical republicanism. Mm. So the, the, the politics of virtue that you mentioned, of shaping virtuous citizens, virtuous subjects who can uphold liberty, that more belongs to this Republican tradition that stretches back to Machiavelli. Mm. And it's very much politics and virtue first. The clearest expression of that in the American system is, is Thomas Jefferson. Right. right. He's famous, famously suspicious. Yeah, famously suspicious of like banks and, and mm -hmm. commerce and 
the opposing the opposing school is liberalism proper which is represented by somebody like Hamilton and you can trace this back to the Scottish Enlightenment and even before that to people like Bernard Mandeville and John Locke mm-hmm. where basically mm-hmm. man man is there to pursue his own you know security first of all but once you have that to pursue uh, commodious living I think it's mm-hmm. Thomas Hobbes put it so he's there to pursue self-interest rather than virtue right and if you had asked me like 10 years ago which which of these conceptions of politics I would endorse, you know, I think I would have said I'd be, I'd be more like Jefferson, right? Because we're already living in an age of greed, in an age of self-interest, right? If I was, mm-hmm. if I was one of those Occupy Wall Street people, I would be more on the virtue <laughs> side of this, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. Like self-interest is a bad word. But now uh-huh. that we're sitting here in 2022, you know, and this whole kind of, I've uncovered this post-materialist mindset. If you look at the people now, right? Like if you look at Trump, economic self-interest is not is not really the motivating factor for a lot of these people, right? Mm-hmm. They need the moral and the symbolic recognition. So it's often it's often been said, you know, how come these you know these white working class people, how come they vote against their economic interest? You know, they vote for because to a lot of people, not just on the right but on the left, the idea of moral and symbolic recognition is much more important than any material economic gain. Mm. Yeah, that sums up our politics today. You know, it's much more of it's so we're no longer living in that Hamiltonian, Lockean, you know, rational pursuit of self-interest. I, I feel like we've long since fallen out of that. We're now in this sort of radical moral communitarianism. Interesting. That's, that's it's the sort culture of, war. It, it's yeah, the culture war is sort of like uh... Republican lowercase R anarcho tyranny. Yeah. yeah, like virtue our virtue as a people or as a tribe, whether you're the MAGA or the SJW crowd, mm-hmm. is far more important. That's why when I show up at these at these places, you know, and I have my my essays and my my technocratic blueprints, like I'm like, hey, you want to tax the rich? Look, here's how you do it. You want to control immigration and regulate the labor market? Here's how you do it. Nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about the policy and the te- technocratic detail. They care about these kind of Thumotic, atavistic things, right? So, <laughs> yeah. so no, I, yeah, I, I right. As somebody, as somebody who's like interested in like the nitty gritty of no, like, the grid, right? The, the grid, grid, yeah. Nobody totally, gives a crap. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm like, no, no, no. But like, if this doesn't work, nothing does. Yeah. Like this is not incidental. This is essential. Yeah, you could <laughs> yeah. Emmett, Emmett, you could write like a thousand page, you know, a blueprint of how to like, you know, rebuild the electric system from nobody's nobody's gonna that's not going to it's gonna go in one ear out the other right yeah because that's not the the salient point in our politics so i'm thinking after having made this observation that you know maybe we need to go back to the liberalism proper right maybe mm. then re, re, you know building subjects that are actually oriented towards the pursuit of a rational self-interest you know maybe that would be an improvement compared to where we are now, right? Because if you look at our, like, like you know, to go back to the beginning of the conversation, if you look at our generation, the millennial generation, like we're the generation that was robbed of our future by the boomers, mm-hmm. right? But we can't, for the, for, for the, you know, we can't, for the life of us, build a program, like a proper, you know, redistributionist program. Or, hey, why don't we take the wealth from the boomers, you know, and, and, 
you know, invest it in, in our own future. Like we can't, we can't think in those terms because that would be much too grounded in rational self-interest, right? So instead we, we go into these aesthetic and identity-based subcultures and that's very much our, you know, the extent of our engagement of politics. So, right. No, I think that's so, that's so good, right? Because I, I love that. That's such a like contrarian take. I you should pitch another piece to Compact or something. That sort of. Yeah. I'm actually writing a piece, you know, with Compact, and I, I don't want to bury the lead, but they had me interview, you know, one of the more prominent members of the dissident right. Uh-huh. who's in favor of monarchy, which is really sort of another way of restoring that pre-modern, commu- you know, radical communitarianism. Yeah, yeah. I think you might know who this person is, but... Yes, I, I, have, uh, I have a guess, yeah. <laughs> but then what I, was, what I realized as I was interviewing this person and writing my piece was that this, this realization that, you know, liberal self-interest is actually the way to go. Like, you know, that, that's when it came to me. So I'm, I, I now pub, I submitted this piece, which they're editing, which I contrast this view that I've just offered you of liberal self-interest versus the radical communitarian view. And the, the funny thing is it led me to the conclusion that the right form of government is, because you have rule by the many, rule by the few, and rule by one, right? Yeah, right, yeah. I, I'm agreed with this figure, with this person, that sort of democracy you know, is not a, 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 a useful analytical category for, we, for, mm. we, for where we are today. And if you follow sort of the American Affairs James Burnham discourse, the elite discourse, like you'll, you'll sort of get an idea of why right, that is. Right, yeah. So it leads us to this question of monarchy versus oligarchy, rule, mm-hmm. rule by the many versus rule by the few. And because this person is pro-monarchy, I ended up taking the side of pro-oligarchy. Right. So, so I basically, in, the, in this piece, I make the case for self-interested oligarchy as the proper form of government to lead us away from neoliberalism which just sounds completely insane <laughs> but now i'm actually i actually have i ordered like all of these books on on oligarchy from like aristotle xenophon so now i, I have was, to make i was the about to say like you you have to do like a return to to aristotle i mean like yeah. sort of you know, obviously not to tell you what to do. I love the ancient Greeks. I, I yeah. try to read them as often as I can. And one of the things that I think is particularly interesting is sort of like uh, Aristotle's political science, for lack of a better term. Yeah. You know, where he does sort of the the constitutional comparisons and then sort of like, how would you write? He's interested in the regime staying together over a period of time. Yeah. Right. So, so how would you, what are your pitfalls? How would you hold it together? I mean- I just think that's interesting, right, to sort of bring it back to your general thesis is that, like, there's sort of this boomerang back to tribalist ancient Greek oligarchic thinking (laughs) as a way to preserve uh, the the rational liberalism, right? Like, like you can easily see how there's sort of like a, a Jacobinite, probably both the magazine and the actual historical thrust i wouldn't say ideology because it's so diverse how could you that would say like this is always the problem with liberalism is that in order to maintain itself it will eventually figure out how to consolidate power into the hands of the few yeah and you know the the, the beautiful thing that i realized in history of liberalism is that all almost 
you know, with the partial exception, I would say, of the Stalinist modernization regime. All of the great modernizing regimes in the last, I would say, 300 years, maybe this is too broad a sweep, but, but a lot of these regimes, whether it's the post-Glorious Revolution England or the Hamiltonian Early Republic or Meiji Restoration Japan or you know, Deng Xiaoping's China, like these are all regimes that made tremendous material progress, right? The kind of progress that we're going to need if we're going to rebuild your electric grid or if we're going to bring the factories back to the Midwest, right? Mm-hmm. Tremendous material progress. Almost all of these regimes are oligarchies. They're driven by these self right, The Republic of Korea would be a good example. Yes, yeah. under Colonel, uh, what's his name? Park? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so these modernizing regimes had an oligarchic structure. It was driven by a self-interested elite, but their self-interest was sort of bound up with the national interest. And they pursued these programs of material progress that, you know, ended up benefiting the whole of their of their societies, but that they were primarily in the driving in the in the driver's seat. In fact, the first regime of this kind, which is, I get into this with the uh, with the monarchist fellow is the Whig oligarchy of England. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I really, I, I try to, in this essay, I try to like rediscover the merits of the Whig oligarchy. But basically what it is, is these guys centralized power in, in a few hands uh, under the leadership of Prime Minister, the first Prime Minister of, Eng- of England in the modern sense, it was Robert Walpole. And they basically pursued this program. But the interesting thing is the opposition to that regime came in, in the form of this uh, magazine called The Craftsman, which mm. was edited by this fellow by the name of Lord Bolingbroke. Okay. Right. Yeah. Have, okay. have you ever heard of this guy, Bolingbroke? Yes. Yeah. So yeah. he's an interesting guy. If you read he's if you read his polemics, all of what he's saying about the, the, the Whig regime, you know, they they almost resemble word for word the current conservative ideology, which is basically criticizing the administrative state, criticizing crony capitalism mm-hmm. in the name of like a pre-existing liberty. So it's like in that that polemical tradition, you know, was was very much an influence on the patriots of the American Revolution, in particular Jefferson and Adams. Yes. So yeah. it's interesting, like the, you know, this is the Republican tradition that we're talking about, right? The, the as opposed to liberalism proper. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's interesting to me that this sort of anti-modern, anti-bureaucratic strain, you know, like that's built into the political culture of the American Revolution, and that's what we're dealing with now. And I think you touch on that as well in, in your some of your pieces where you talk about like the Hamiltonian trend in the early 20th century in America, mm-hmm. and then these sort of Jeffersonian, you know, environmentalist-aligned forces came along, and, and they sort of you know, so it's 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 all sort of it's all in there. You know that opposition we talked about between liberalism and republicanism, like it's such a a useful framework. Right, I think so too. I'm more and more convinced by like by that. I'm actually starting a reading group with some friends next year on the founding documents to sort of go deeper into the American tradition on that. But I think what I'm taking away from this is that I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about this tension again after some of your next pieces come out. Sure. Because I think whether or not we end up agreeing, I don't really care. I think you and I are 
looking at similar terrain. Yeah. And here's the thing, Emmett. I think the choice that you and a lot of your listeners will have to make in the near future is between absolute monarchy as proposed by certain figures on the right and my <laughs> and my alternative of absolute oligarchy. So right. <laughs> those are the only two, those are the only two options awaiting the American people is monarchy and oligarchy. So make it right. Right, right. Yeah, the Eagle King or BlackRock. It's up to you. Yes, yes. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a blast. Everybody, go check out Michael's stuff. He wisely has no social media for you to check out, but his articles that we discussed are in the show notes. And keep an eye out in Compact and American Affairs for what he's got coming down the pike. And we will leave it there. Stay safe out there. We're going to talk to you about the most urgent thing that is on our mind and what we suspect is the most urgent thing on the minds of those who will connect with us. We'll title this tape, 